for someone who's living out of a suitcase uh, at the moment, I'm glad to see we have a fairly informal uh, dress code here, but uh, perhaps we can all agree it was a good idea I left the toga at home. Already. It's been an absolute joy uh, for me to be uh, here at Highfield uh, Church this weekend, and I'd really like to take this opportunity to thank everyone who's uh, been working behind the scenes to organise, uh, prepare for my visit, and give me this opportunity to, to serve you uh, today as well as uh, yesterday. Uh, yesterday I was talking a lot about the new atheism and about the rationality of belief in God, and today I'm talking in the services a little more about Jesus, which is, of course, the central issue so far as Christian theism is concerned. You may uh, have heard of Philip Pullman, the author of the His Dark Materials trilogy, and his recent book, The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ, in which he uh, imaginatively and without uh, any historical evidence uh, retells the gospel stories on the basis that Mary had twins. Uh, the reviewer in The Guardian noted that the gospel according to Pullman will prompt many readers to turn once more to consider whether or not they should accept the apparently bizarre testimony of the early Christian witnesses. Testimony which they repeatedly insisted was not simply a story, like Pullman's book, but was based on factual experience. The New Testament scholar R.T. France from Oxford University reckoned that at the level of their literary and historical character, we have really good reason to treat the Gospels seriously as sources of information about Jesus. But he also noted that beyond that point of what the, the historical evidence can tell us, the decision as to how far a scholar is willing to accept the record they offer is likely to be influenced more by their openness to a supernatural worldview than by strictly historical considerations. Let me put it like this to you. This is the Nicene Creed, a summary of basic Christian beliefs uh, dated usually to the 4th century AD. And you notice that it starts with, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. And then it moves on to talking about, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Now, if you are an atheist, you don't believe that there is a God, you're going to find it quite hard to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. It would take a lot more evidence, historically speaking, to convince you that Jesus Christ was the incarnate Son of God who rose from the dead, if you approached that historical testimony believing that there is no God in the first place. Because all of the evidence would have to kind of do two jobs, establish who Jesus was, and also establish that there is a God. But if you approach the historical evidence about Jesus with a belief in some kind of a God, a general theism in hand. And then you're asking, and is it possible that that God has revealed himself to humanity in the person of Christ? Well, then you'd still want evidence, but all of the power of that evidence could go into establishing who Jesus was for you. Alvin Plantinga is perhaps the world's most noted philosopher of religion. 
He's an American of Dutch extraction with a fantastic beard on him. And he is also uh, a Christian. And he reckons that there are at least a couple of dozen or so good arguments for God. Now, I haven't got time to go into that today. I touched on it yesterday evening, and I can refer you to uh, my book, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, if you want more on some of that material. But I've recently been writing a book that's going to come out next year on the historical Jesus, a book called Understanding Jesus. And I've been looking into providing what's called a cumulative case, the kind of case that lawyers put together in a court of law, a cumulative case for understanding Jesus in the Christian way, a case where each argument in the case provides at least some evidence for the Christian view of Christ, but without necessarily providing enough evidence on its own to convince you. But the accumulation of several reasons together, all pointing in the same direction, can be very powerful. So if we imagine this uh, balance pan, and over here we're putting the plausibility of thinking about Jesus in the Christian way, I would say that thinking about Jesus' self-image raises the plausibility of the Christian understanding of Jesus. I'd also throw into that left-hand pan there Jesus' miracles, Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the historical evidence for that. Jesus' fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy and religious experience of Jesus that continues, of course, even today. And I think the combination of these five reasons for understanding Jesus the Christian way provides a powerful cumulative case, particularly when you approach that evidence with a generalised belief in some kind of a God already in hand. And I'd like to look at two of those reasons briefly with you this morning. The first is the issue of Jesus' self-identity, his self-understanding. This uh, book has a very provocative title, Putting Jesus in His Place, The Case for the Deity of Christ. And the authors point out that throughout the New Testament, Uh, Jesus is described as having the same honours as God, the same attributes as are ascribed to God. The same names that are applied to God are applied to Jesus. Uh, That Jesus is described as doing deeds that only God is thought able to do in the Old Testament. And that Jesus shares the judgment seat of God which uh, helpfully spells out the uh, acrostic hands, so you can remember these elements of evidence. Well, on the basis of that kind of evidence from the New Testament, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book Mere Christianity, very famously made this argument. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who thinks he's a poached egg, Or he'd be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse, a liar. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his just being a great moral teacher. He's not left that open to us. It's an argument that was made particularly famous by Lewis, but he wasn't the first one to to think of it. This is Professor John Duncan 
from 1796 to 1870. And he argued Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he was himself deluded, self-deluded, self-deceived. Or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma, an expansion of the word dilemma. It is inexorable. But of course, that argument is assuming that the evidence for Christ's self-understanding in the New Testament is correct. And there would be people who would question this. For example, Dan Brown, author of books such as The Da Vinci Code. This is an extract from The Da Vinci Code where Professor Chibing here says that Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet. A great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Not the son of God, asks another character. Right, Teabing says, Jesus' establishment of the son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the council of Nicaea. Now that was a church council meeting of bishops that took place in 325 AD. So according to this, before 325 AD, Christians just thought of Jesus as a, as a good moral teacher, prophet of God, and then at the Council of Nicaea, someone had a bright idea and said, why don't we say that he was God as well? And they had a vote, and it, it passed. And uh, since then, Christians have thought of Jesus as divine. Bunk. There is conclusive evidence against this view, both uh, indirect evidence and direct evidence. When you look at the beliefs of early Christians, or you look at the evidence we have of Jesus' own beliefs. Let's start with the early Christians and just look at some archaeological discoveries. This is a wall painting that depicts the episode from Mark's Gospel, the earliest Gospel, of the healing of the paralytic. And it's the earliest known pictorial representation of Jesus. And it's been dated to about 235 AD. So that's 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. You can see in the painting here, this is uh, Jesus pointing at the man on his bed, the paralytic on his bed. And then this is the paralytic having been healed by Jesus, picking up his um, rather literally translated idea of a bed and walking with his bed. And of course, in the story, Jesus heals the man and says, pick up your bed and walk to show that he has the authority to forgive his sins. And his claim to have the authority to forgive sins caused quite a eruption. I've highlighted a bit of the text here where the, those standing there say, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, sure, if uh, I hurt Kevin here, it would be his right to come back to me and say, Pete, you really hurt me, but I forgive you. But if someone else was on the receiving end, if I hurt you, sir, and then Kevin came along to you and said, let me deal with this. I've got this one. Pete, I forgive you. I mean, I, I hurt him. And you're forgiving me? 
Who does this guy think he is? To claim to forgive someone's sin when they haven't sinned directly against him. Only God claims the power to forgive everyone's sins. Only God is on the receiving end, if you like, of all of our sins. This is a a top-down view of the mosaics in a Christian prayer hall, a Christian meeting place, uh, dug up recently in uh, Medigo, dated by the pottery and so on, to about 230 AD. So again, about 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. And you notice, first of all, that over here we have some fish in the mosaic here. And we know from other sources that the fish was an early Christian symbol because the the Greek words for fish, ichthus, uh, stood for a combination of of words that made an acrostic, like that hands that we had earlier. And it stood for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. Son of God. Hundred years before Nicaea. But even more interestingly, this inscription here, here's a close-up of it, and it reads, The God-loving Akeptus has offered the table, that is the communion table in the middle of the room, this is the person who provided the, the table for the, for the hall. The God-loving Akeptus has offered the table to the God, Jesus Christ. <coughs> This is called the uh, Alaxaminos Graffito. Graffito is Latin for graffiti. You may not know this. Uh, It's a unique piece of wall graffiti found near the Palatina Hill in Rome. And it has an inscription and this sort of cartoon carved into a wall. And it's rather vaguely dated. You get different datings depending which book you look it up in. But it's dated between the 1st and 3rd centuries, so it's certainly before the Council of Nicaea. And you can see here uh, a chap uh, raising his hand up, looking at a figure on a cross, a figure with a a donkey head, and the inscription below uh, reads, uh, Acaptus Alaxaminos worships his god. Who do you know that worshipped someone who was on a cross, apart from Christians? You can only worship God. Indeed, the oldest Christian sermon, the oldest liturgical prayer, the oldest account of a Christian martyr, the oldest pagan report of the church, all refer to Christians as believing in Jesus as divine. But where did they get this idea from? Particularly since the earliest Christians were Jewish monotheists. The trilemma, if you like, equally applies to early Christian beliefs. Did they just lie about it and make up this belief that Jesus was divine even though they didn't believe it themselves? Or did they get it, perhaps most plausibly, from Jesus himself? Doesn't this point to Jesus' own self-understanding? Well, let's look at some of that direct evidence in that passage that we had read out for us. The evidence is not going well for the high priest here. All of the witnesses are contradicting each other. Maybe they didn't pay them enough. Um, you know, you can't get the staff these days. And uh, so he thinks, okay, let's, let's try and get Jesus to put his own foot in it. Let's, let's really 
go for it here, and it asks him as a last-ditch attempt, you know, come on, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Messiah? Are you claiming to be God's Messiah? I am, said Jesus. Immediately think of uh, the burning bush episode. I am, says God. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. It's a traditional symbol of grief. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses? He asks. You've all heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemn him as worthy of death by their law for blasphemy. This passage really hits home when you know the Old Testament background of imagery that Jesus is drawing on here and applying to himself. It comes from a visionary passage in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel 7, where Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And this is traditional Jewish imagery for the glory of God, the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Now, the Old Testament is very hot on the idea that you can only worship God. You can't worship creatures. It's idolatry. You can't worship other people. You can't... Uh, bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. You can't even worship an angel of the Lord. You can only worship God. And yet here is this Son of Man figure given worship. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. No mere human can have that. And will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And Jesus takes this imagery from Daniel's vision and applies it to himself says, I am the Son of Man, and I am going to sit on God's throne of judgment, and I'm going to judge you guys who think you're judging me. Oh, you know, if ever there was a time for a bit of theological subtlety to save your life, that would have been it. And yet Jesus deliberately ups the ante. Little wonder, little wonder then there's a consensus of scholarship that, as Gary Habermas in the middle here says, from a variety of angles, we learn that Jesus thought of himself as deity. N.T. Wright says, Jesus believed himself called to do and be what, in the scriptures, only Israel's God did and was. This presents us with a profound puzzle, a, a, a conundrum, a paradox, which I think can be brought out like this. You'll have heard the, lots of sayings, you know, there are two kinds of people, people who divide people into two kinds of people and those who don't. Well, let's divide people into four kinds of people. People who do not claim to be divine in the biblical sense of divinity and people who do claim to be divine. And on the other column, we've got people who we recognize as sages, people who we think are really wise, moral, profound teachers, and then people who are non-sages. Well, non-sages who do not claim to be divine is most people. That's us, you and me. 
people who do not claim to be divine in the biblical sense, but who we recognise as profound, wise, moral teachers. Maybe you could count them on the fingers of two hands. People like Buddha, Socrates, Confucius, Lao Tzu, Moses. But what about people who do claim to be divine? There certainly are people who make that claim. They recognise psychological divinity complexes and so on. But we tend to put them in institutions because they're non-sages. We don't think of such people as being profound, wise, world-impacting teachers. We think of them as people to be helped. But what about people who do claim to be divine that the majority of people would say, yeah, he's a really profound, wise, interesting moral teacher who's had a big impact on the world. One. One person, I would suggest. Jesus. What a paradox. Why is he the only guy in that quadrant? What is the best explanation of that data, of that puzzle? We have some logically limited explanatory options here. I can diagram it for you. Given that Jesus claimed divinity, that claim was either true or false. It's one or the other. And if it was false, either he knew he was making a false claim and he was a liar, or he didn't know he was making a false claim and he was a lunatic. To the extent to which you think it's implausible to characterize Jesus as a lunatic or a liar, given the rounded evidence that we have for him, to that extent you think it's implausible to think that his claim to divinity was false. And it becomes more plausible to think that that claim was true. So was he perhaps a liar and a blasphemer? Well, that would have been a big cultural deal for Jesus to claim he's divine if he knows he isn't, to be a liar, to be a blasphemer in that culture. Um, so his life depended upon whether or not he was going to make that claim there. What about the lack of plausible motive? You know, why would a man who's clearly clever from his other interactions with people in the Gospels, why would he lie about this, especially at the trial, where it secured a death sentence? You know, what was he lying for? Some kind of death wish? Isn't it out of character with everything else we can know about him? Why would this acknowledged great moral teacher, a devout Jew, certainly, perjure himself by blaspheming in such a manner? But then, of course, maybe he was a lunatic. Peter Kreeft, an American philosopher, notes that, that a measure of your insanity is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you really are. Sanity relates self-image to reality. How out of touch or in touch with reality are you? If I come to you this morning and I say, okay guys, I'm a pretty decent sort of chap. You know, I'm okay. You'll probably let me get away with it. You know. If I came to you and I said, and I was sincere about this, which I'm not by the way, if I said, I'm the nicest person in the room, well, you're beginning to think that I'm a bit conceited and stuck up myself. If I come to you and I sincerely tell you that I am the most moral person in the whole world at the moment, 
you're beginning to think I'm pathological. If I come to you and I say, not only am I the most moral person there's ever been, or could be, indeed, I'm perfect and without sin, who among you can accuse me of sin? Says Jesus in John's Gospel. Well, clearly I'm barking. Unless that's actually true. (coughs) But again, to describe Jesus as a loony just seems out of character with everything else that we know about him. His wisdom, his moral teaching, the cleverness of his interactions with those who are trying to trip him up. Is it plausible to characterise that person as a lunatic? Peter Kreeft argues that Jesus has an abundance of those qualities, liars and lunatics conspicuously lack, such as practical wisdom, winning love, creativity. What does Richard Dawkins make of this kind of argument for understanding Jesus the Christian way? A journalist once asked him, when you read some of C.S. Lewis's works, we quoted from him earlier, Uh, A Christian, a communicator with a fertile mind, a great intellect, an Oxford Don and so on. Why do you think someone who's a a scholar is grabbed by faith? Dawkins says, well, you could pick a much better target than C.S. Lewis. I mean, he was, after all, a professor of English. Um, No doubt a very good one. Uh, But when you read some of his arguments, they're, they're just pathetic. I mean, things like... Well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the Son of God. did not seem to occur to him, to Lewis, that Jesus could simply be mistaken. Sincerely and honestly mistaken. I mean, what a pathetic argument. Hmm, Jesus could simply be mistaken, sincerely and honestly mistaken. Like I am sometimes about where I left the keys. You know, we all make mistakes. Jesus was just making a mistake when he said he sincerely thought he was God. As Nicky Gumbel, guy behind the Alpha Course, says, the irony of the God delusion is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe there is a God. But Jesus was not deluded, even though he thought he was God. Mike King put it very well when he said, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way, on such an issue, in such a culture, would inevitably be considered insane. But why should Dawkins et al. not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as mad or bad? Why not go for one of those options? Well, quite clearly, it's because even a rudimentary flick through Jesus' life demonstrates both of these possibilities to be untenable. So that's a quick skim through the argument from Jesus' self-identity. I'd like to very briefly look at one more, one of those other five on my list, and that is Jesus' fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. It's an argument that's intrigued me for a long time, and that I was particularly looking forward to researching into in doing my book this last year. Because I think a number of of Christian uh, apologists kind of overplay this argument, aren't careful enough about the way in which they formulate it, and um, sometimes give it a bit of a bad name, because they're not uh, painstaking enough, enough in the way that they put together the data. So I wanted to be as painstaking as, as I could.
Uh, Victor Stenger is one of the new atheists, and in his uh, book, The New Atheism, he says that to validate a spiritual experience, all that has to happen is that the person returning from such an experience reports some fact that she could not have known ahead of time. This could be the successful prediction of some future event, a fulfilled prophecy. But as Christian philosopher Thomas V. Morris says, a single successful prediction about a remote or unlikely event can be just a lucky guess, a shot in the dark that just happens to hit its target. But the more successful predictions of that sort a person's able to make, the less likely we are to be fully satisfied with just ascribing it all to luck. At a certain point, we have to hypothesize some explanation for the success, some connection responsible for the otherwise highly improbable accuracy. So one prophecy is not going to do it, but at some point, it becomes unreasonable to just keep saying, oh, they, they had a lucky guess. Well, in 1 Peter 1, I found a fascinating passage that helped me organize the data um, Peter's writing, and he says, Some prophets told how kind God would be to you, and they searched hard to find out more about the way you would be saved. The Spirit of Christ was in them and was telling them how Christ would suffer and would then be given great honor. So they searched to find out exactly who Christ would be and when this would happen. See a number of categories of prediction here. When the Messiah would be active, who the Messiah would be, that the Messiah would suffer in the cause of salvation, the manner of that suffering, and the discernment that having suffered, the Messiah would somehow be given great honour. And all of those categories of Old Testament prophecy do indeed seem to come to life in the life of Christ. Some of this text is probably a bit small up here this morning, but I tried to look at different prophecies in these different categories. And here, for example, are eight independent prophecies about the Messiah's origins with a listing of the Old Testament prediction. And I tried to go for predictions that were really clearly predictions about the Messiah not sort of the vague kind of stuff that you read in the astrology column. Very clear predictions. And then New Testament evidence of their fulfillment from multiple different sources. So not just one source claiming that this event that was predicted actually happened, but multiple sources and independent sources. And then I've got a rough, very rough, back-of-the-envelope kind of estimate of the probabilities of those predictions being accurate just by luck, by chance. And I reckon there's about a one chance in 17 million that these eight prophecies about the Messiah's origins would have been right by luck. Uh, I worked with a PhD mathematician friend of mine from Southampton University to check that I was getting my maths right. I've got four prophecies about the Messiah's actions uh, about the fact that, that it's predicted he would heal various people, that he'd be rejected by the rulers and so on. And again, looking at clear Old Testament prophecies and independently verified uh, 
witness that they were indeed fulfilled. Back of the envelope, calculations on the odds. I reckon there's about a one chance in 10 million that these four prophecies would all be uh, fulfilled in the life of Christ. Well, the odds of just these 12 prophecies being fulfilled by chance in an individual are about one chance in 170 million million. It's pretty long odds. If we take just 15 aspects of Jesus' fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 and Psalm 22, I really encourage you, if you've not read these before, I mean, even if you have, go and look up Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and then read the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. If we assign a generous, very generous, I think, one in four chance for each fulfillment, each of those 15 fulfillments, then the combined odds that all of them would come true in one individual are about one in 1,074 million. And if we combine that with the odds concerning Jesus' origins and actions, we can, and I mean this, conservatively estimate that Jesus had about a one chance in 182,580 million million million. That is, one in 1.8 times 10 to the power of 123 chance of fulfilling just these 27 prophecies that are clear and obvious Old Testament prophecies, there are vaguer, unclearer ones, that are independently attested by multiple sources coming true. Let me give you an illustration of what those odds mean in kind of concrete terms, because if you're anything like me, you can't really just imagine what 1.8 times 10 to the 23 means. Those odds are easily comparable to your chances of successfully picking up at random on your first attempt a single pre-specified grain of sand out of all the grains of sand on the planet. That's long odds. As Morris says, a series of prophecies made by different people at different times, culminating in a single fulfilment by the life of so remarkable a person as Jesus, one who was making all those claims to deity and so on, remember, cries out for an explanation of a quite extraordinary sort. The most reasonable explanation, surely, that God was involved in the prophecy and fulfilment, thereby giving us an extra ground for accepting Jesus as the culmination of divine revelation. Now, I may or may not, at that stage, have convinced you of the Christian view of Jesus, as it were. That's going to depend on things like, did you approach that evidence believing that there's some kind of a God out there who might reveal himself, or you're an atheist or an agnostic? It'll depend on things like you might want to take some more time to read around the background, read other people's take on the evidence, check that I'm not scamming you on anything, go and talk to some mathematicians about the odds. But maybe I've at least intrigued you enough for you to think, this is something worth seriously investigating. I mean, after all, I've got three more arguments that I could give you. 
at some stage it begins to mount up. So let me just suggest to you that if you are intrigued enough to want to explore this more, you can do things like go to the bookstore that we've got downstairs where there's some excellent books on the historical Jesus that I recommended that they get in for this weekend. Uh, sign up to the Christianity Explored course here. There's a new one starting soon, I think. There are some little cards by the door downstairs on the opposite side uh, to the bookstore. And, of course, you're very welcome to come along to the Q&A lunch today and pepper me with some more questions. God bless you.